Thank you, Sam, and thank you for the praise team. Guys, give them a just, it's a ministry I've gotten to do once and again, and it's, it is, it's a ministry, but it's, it's a work, and it's, it's a love at the same time. So, Sam, we thank you um, for you and your team. Um, we're going to uh, pray for the offering here, um, but uh, just notice, I really noticed that uh, we're missing a really important part of the church this morning. There's about 80 women up at Camp Bethel this morning that are worshiping Jesus, encountering him. And so I just, I would like to pray. My wife is actually doing the speaking, so brag on her for a minute and then also pray for her. I thought it could be kind of cool. We're both speaking this morning to be in prayer for her. Um, so would you join me um, as we pray? Dear, dear Lord Jesus, we come before you and we just say thank you. The first thing from our lips, from our hearts, from our minds, from our souls, Lord, we say thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not leave us in the penalties of our sin and in the wrath that we earned, God, but that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, for us, for me. And so we say thank you that, that you gave us your righteousness, Lord Jesus, and took upon yourself our sin. And Lord, that you, you gave that to us by faith not by works, not by the things that we could or could not do. And so, Lord, I just say thank you that you have that kind of grace and that kind of love of each and every person here that would pray, place their faith in you this morning. And, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, uh, God, that you would do the speaking, that you would do the teaching. And, God, as they open up the word up there on the mountain, our ladies, God, our women, would you, Holy Spirit, minister to them? Would you encourage them? Would you equip them? Would you edify them with one another? Would you increase their relationships with one another, Lord? And I pray for Becky as she speaks that you would do the teaching through her and that, that the women there would be encouraged. Lord, we thank you for them and uh, really how important they are to us. And uh, what a privilege it is to, to know them and to have them in our lives, God. We thank you for them, and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this offering, God. May it go to you and to your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, hey, guys. Uh, my name is Shane Rosti, and I am the student ministries pastor here at the church. And uh, I want to take you. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I want to get you guys caught up. I want to take you through some of the things that we're going through in our youth ministry and our student ministries. Uh, we're going to be going through, and um, just so you guys know, there's a sheet in your bulletins. This did this already all to me this morning, but I lost my slide several times. So there should be some help there in the In the bulletin, hang on there, tech difficulties, never happens. That was, of course, very sarcastic. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Awesome. Maybe here. You guys get to see what my outlines look like. Um, so we're going we're gonna to take, we're going to, so for student ministries, we're going to be going through uh, 46 parables, the 46 parables of Jesus. We're going to take 36 weeks to do that in our student ministries. You guys are just going to get a quick insight into what that's going to look like. Our series for this, this whole year is going to be on point parables. Um, we're going to unpack that here in a minute. Um, but let's start. I love what Chad is, the, the norm that we're, we're starting here is would you stand for the reading of God's word as we read together. Um, and it starts 
here in Luke 5, Luke 5, 27 through 28. This is God's word. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were, who were guests with them, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them, and here it is, he told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says, the old is better. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would teach us exactly what you meant by this parable, that it would be what you intend for us to receive from it, uh, God, and that we wouldn't bring our own meanings to it. And so, Lord, we just pray for that. Holy Spirit, would you do the teaching? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, go ahead and be seated. Um, so the first question that we need to ask or need to answer is, what is a parable? What is a parable? And so um, I, I scoured the internet, I did some research, and there's just so many different ways that one could define a parable. But the best one that I could find uh, was this one. It's from John MacArthur. A parable is an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. A parable is an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. The word simple there is really important for us to unpack because simple the original hearers of all of the parables that Jesus would, would have taught, they would have been taught in, in, in the stories themselves would have applied to the culture at the time. So it's really important that we understand the original audience of this parable and the rest of the parables is they whole, the whole crowd would have understood exactly what Jesus was trying to get at. They would have known exactly. And the reason the parables can be kind of confusing to us today is because we don't live life like they did 2,000 years ago, do we? Pretty significantly different. And so we're going to, if we have time, unpack really what some of those cultural differences are and then how can we, through the lens of the original audience, understand what Jesus was trying to get at in this parable. Um, the next thing that we need to ask is, why did Jesus use parables? You ever wondered that? Why did Jesus use parables? Um, uh, before, we get, before we get to that, I want to uh, point out to you, notice the cactus on the on-point parables. I'm going to use a quick parable to describe parables to you. Are you ready? Here's a parable. P uh, parables are like a cactus. They have a specific point that is sometimes sharp and hard to hear but full of refreshment even in the desert. 
you notice that, that cactus can be sometimes some of the only sources of refreshment in the desert? Um, well, the thing about Jesus' parables is they can be really sharp. They're actually designed to be kind of a gut punch. There's these hard, sharp um, things that Jesus says, but um, if you can get around those sharp parts, you can find the refreshment of God's word, the, the things that can parch us in the, in the desert. So why did Jesus use parables? Um, he actually told us directly, I've got that passage in your notes, Matthew 13, 10 through 17, the disciples ask him, why do you use parables? And he, he told them in that passage, but in the interest of time, there's your homework. Read that passage, okay? Um, to give, and so ultimately sum it up for you, he gave it to, so he gave his teaching in parables to give the hearers the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to reveal to his hearers the kingdom of heaven, the truth about the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he says. And so they have, parables themselves have two key purposes. One is to invite the humble, to invite the humble, and get this, to offend the proud, to offend the prideful. And I think it, it can have, parables can have that same potential with us today. If we come to God's word this morning and we think we've got it figured out, we know how life works and we know how God works and there's no way for him to, to speak to us or to, to move in us or to, to reveal truth to us, then we are, we are going to miss out because he invites the humble, those who, like he says, need a doctor, those who are sick. And we know that all of us, if you're here this morning and you're a professing Christian, you would recognize you're that sick person, aren't you? We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners here. We all need, are in desperate need for the grace of Jesus Christ through faith. And so, why did Jesus teach in parables? To reveal the kingdom of heaven, to invite the humble to himself, and to offend the prideful. He taught about one-third of the time in parables, so it wasn't the only way that he taught, but there's a specific instance in Scripture where he begins to teach in parables, and that is when these guys called the Pharisees come into the picture. And they began going where he was and asking questions and trying to prove points and argue with him because they believed that they knew better than Christ. They were astounded at this new spiritual teaching of his, but they were frustrated by it. And so Jesus, in an effort to both offend the prideful and push those who are working against his truth away, and also to invite, I think, those, it's a mercy to those who were prideful in the Pharisees to maybe humble them enough to come and to receive the grace that he had offered them. And so this morning, you can have one of two reactions to what we're going to go through in this parable. You can say, I'm good, I don't need anything. Or you can say, oh, God, I'm desperate. Open my eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to hear from you. I want to see you. That's humility. So 50 times, Jesus mentions parables 50 times in 48 verses. And before we jump into unpacking this context, we're going to spend most of the time in the context uh, because the context is important to understand what Jesus was trying to say um, before we do, I want to tell you a little story. I've been doing college ministry at Sheridan College. This is our ninth year at Sheridan College, and uh, I'm, I've been here at the church for about five years doing high school and junior high ministry. 
love every second of it, but I've got a lot of interesting, I just, I've worked with a lot of students and a lot of interesting moments with them. One particular moment is I was working with a leadership team, and we were trying to practice what James says by confessing our sins before one another and praying for each other, so we were trying to practice confessing sin within our small group, and then and we were trying to pray for one another because there's a deep emotional scars oftentimes that are left over because of our sin, because of sin against us. And so we pray to be healed from that, from those scars. And so um, we, we try to do this every once in a while. And after doing this time of confession, a student pulled me aside and he said, Shane, I really need to talk to you. He really need to talk to you. He pulled me aside. We sat in my office at the time in my house. And I remember having this intriguing conversation, this deep conversation where he poured out, he had an, a lust addiction, an addiction to lust. And he was struggling using pornography. He could not tear himself away from it. And he was really concerned about that. And I began to talk to him a little bit about his life, you know, trying to unpack the whole picture. And this student then began to, to display or show to me that there was also something else competing for his attention in his relationship with Christ. It wasn't just the pornography. That was a piece of it. But the bigger piece of it was he was spending six to eight hours on video games a day. And as I began to unpack this with him, I, 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 looked at, I looked at his life, I said, you know, we're, we're gonna get to pornography, but you are hopelessly addicted right now to video games, and that is going to steal your attention, your focus from Christ, and you're not gonna be over to, able to overcome your lust addiction if you're not able to let go of the distraction of video games so you can focus on Christ. He's gonna be the only way you can overcome that addiction to pornography. We know we don't overcome our own sin, do we? We need Christ Jesus to do that and to help us through that. And so as I talked to him about the video games, I started to poke at it. You know, I started to say, you know, like, why are you doing this? Why is this such a big thing? And I've never had this, but he began to argue with me and get irate and angry. He got frustrated. This is the first time I've ever had this. He stood up and started yelling back at me because I was poking at something that was super important to him. And that was the only time I've ever had a student get up, walk out, and leave our ministry and never come back. He could not let go of that thing that was important to him. He couldn't let go. And what we see here as we look in this passage, Jesus is gonna start to poke at some things that are really important to the Pharisees. And they're gonna get mad. They're going to get frustrated. Here this morning, I hope that you would allow the Holy Spirit and Christ to poke some things in your life that maybe you've made too important, more important than your walk with Christ. So let's, let's jump in here. We look at, starting verse 27 to 28, the first thing that's important for us to unpack the context is that Luke shows us Levi. He shows us Levi and something in particular that Levi left everything as a tax collector. And this is a lowly man. We know that tax collectors were seen as basically the enemies. They were traitors to their own people. And so nobody liked being around a traitor, a liar. Nobody liked being around tax collectors. And it's not totally dissimilar from today, right? You don't like the mail that we get from the tax collectors. But leaving it so... so so Levi left it. And so as we see, as we look at the early disciples, we know back in verse 11, other disciples used the same language in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, that they also left everything. They left everything to follow Jesus. They left everything to follow Jesus. And so as we look here, 
We know, and many of you would say, and I think agree with me, that we can't leave everything. Some of you are like, man, I have to, I have, to have a job. I have to feed my kids, right? I, we can't leave everything. So for us to do the same as the disciples, maybe not physically, but the principle for us is there. When they were called to discipleship by Jesus, when they were called to follow him, what they did was was they let go of everything. And for us, it's not totally dissimilar when we come into a relationship with Jesus. We know from Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord of our life and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. That's what we stand on for salvation. So the principle here for us is that we can let go of everything under the, unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We can let go of everything in, in, in such a way that he would be the master, the Lord, and that, that's our salvation. When we let go of the things of this world and we cling to Christ, we say everything that is mine is now secondary to you, my Lord Jesus. This is all yours. You tell me what to do. That's lordship. And that's tied to salvation in Romans 10, 9. It's, it's, he becomes the Lord of our life. So we can apply this principle of letting everything go, but letting everything go under the kingship of Jesus. And here's the key for us. For the disciples, nothing was left to compete for their attention. We can't all do that, but we can learn from that, that principle. We have a lot of things that compete for our attention, especially today. You've got things that are screaming out Screaming out for your attention, wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard. We've got to be people that are willing to let go of those things so that we can give our full, undivided attention to Christ because he is our king and he is our master. And so we keep moving on here in this passage as we unpack the context. Then... We know that Levi had this banquet, the Pharisees are there, which is kind of ironic that they're at the, the, the banquet, if you know what I mean, if you read this passage. They're at the banquet complaining about the other people that are at the banquet. Ever been around those folks? But the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the first thing that the Pharisees began to touch on or hit on with the disciples that they notice about Jesus' teaching is that they have expectations for what spiritual teachers are supposed to look like. They have expectations for what a spiritual person is supposed to look like. And the disciples and Jesus are already starting to betray and not act like how they think they should act. But we do that all the time, don't we? We bring in our expectations on what, what a, a Christian life is supposed to look like. We have all kinds of expectations that we bring into that, what a Christian life is supposed to look like. A lot of times, if you've ever wondered and you've ever measured those up to Scripture, a lot of times they seem kind of different. Jesus' teachings and his expectation about what it is to follow him tends to be very different from the American Christian idea of what it means to be a Christian. And so we, the first thing that Jesus begins to hit on then is that we need to look at abandoning our expectations, letting go, leaving our expectations about what life with Christ is supposed to be. See, the disciples had already left everything. The Pharisees, they could not let go of what it meant and their expectations for what it meant to be spiritual. I'm sorry, guys. This keeps battling me here. So thank goodness you got something, hopefully in your bulletin, that you can follow along with me. 
So we should instead ask, ask so a lot of us, I, I think, have that, that, probably that mom or that auntie or that grandma um, or that, even that dad that had expectations for us in our life. Anybody, can you relate to that? Like they had your life mapped out for you. They were like, okay, now that you graduated high school, here you go. This is what you will be doing. Anybody else have that? Well, a lot of us, man, we have that expectations on ourselves, on, on other people, on kids, on students, and, and there's all of these expectations that I think a lot of us as Christians try to place on each other that aren't in Scripture. In fact, we should maybe ask, what, what, are, God's, what, what are God's expectations for us? And we read things from Jesus that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says, come to him all who are weak and heavy laden, not those who are impressive. He says things like Sermon in the Mount, blessed are the poor. Well, that kind of changes our expectations on what it looks like to be a Christian. So maybe we need to ask, do we want God's best for other people in our life? Or like the Pharisees, do, they, do we want them to fall into our expectations for their life? And the, and the thing is, typically when we place expectations, I don't know if you guys notice this, when you have expectations on somebody else, it typically looks a lot like your life. Because, man, we love when other people affirm our life, our decisions, the way that we do things. And so you start to see here, the Pharisees really struggle with letting go of the expectations that they had for a spiritual walk. And we need to do the same. So with tax collectors and sinners. So the next thing that Jesus begins, his disciples just in, them, in and of themselves begin to kind of poke at is that they were tax collectors and sinners. And so they asked the question, how can you sit with these people? Now, the big thing of big importance to the Pharisees was their status, was their status, how impressive they were to others. In fact, these were the kind of guys, like if you walked in to... Uh, there wasn't a Pharisee church, there was a temple, but we'll just say if you walked into a Pharisee church and somebody came and shook your hand, it would be like one of those handshakes where you'd shake hands and then they would do this thing, this little number, because they would be disgusted by you. You'd be like, well, what, man? They run for the Germex, right? And so they were, they were prideful about their status. In fact, if they brushed up against somebody like a tax collector or a prostitute, they would end up going and having to, to bathe or ceremonially cleanse themselves because other people were beneath them. So they viewed a spiritual Christian, or not, not, a, not a Christian, but a spiritual walk or spiritual, um, spiritual life as, as something that was to be of status, to be impressive. But here we know from some of Paul's teachings that he actually encourages the early church to live quietly, not to live with status. We know other parts of Scripture, the first shall be last and the last shall be, the kingdom, uh, and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. We know that it's not about our status as believers, but instead it's about us serving one another. So it's not about standing out, it's about standing under. That's what Jesus taught us to do. He didn't come with this high status he could have. He could have chosen, he could have conquered the whole world right before our eyes, but instead he came so that he could serve us and serve others. And so we know, so we know that it's not like what the Pharisees were hoping for. It's not the kind of exclusivity that they lived that Jesus was getting at, their prominence. So leaving it, they needed to leave their prominence. The next thing that we see 
is they begin to talk about fasting. John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Yours eat and drink. And so here, the disciples and Jesus begin to poke at something that the, I think the Pharisees would say is their thing. That's my thing. That's, that's what makes me me, is I fast, and I fast in an impressive and mournful way. I'm sorrowful. And so everybody can see how sad I am because of my fasting, and it, it was a way for them to be seen and to be impressive. They fasted in a way to be seen. And the important thing about fasting is that it wasn't a bad thing. It's actually, it's in the Bible. Jesus fasted. The, the early church fasted. It's not a bad thing to be fasting. It's not an absolute necessary thing to do, and it's not a bad thing to do, but it, it's a thing that they defined themselves as. So they found their identity. So a lot of us would say that there's a specific thing that we would introduce ourselves with. Typically, it's our occupation that we tie our identity to, or it's what we're good at that we tie our identity to, or it's accomplishments that we tie our identity to. And so the Pharisees are getting this, this identity attacked because they were like, look at us, we're fa- we're, we fast. For us, what is that thing? that we would identify ourselves, that we would, we would tie our identity to, this is our identity to, this is who we are, this is how we describe ourselves, this is how we are impressive. I think a lot of us have many di- different things that aren't Christ Jesus, and so the big idea here is that the Pharisees couldn't abandon what made them oppress- impressive to receive the humility that comes with saying that Christ is impressive, and I am not. So they had to let go of their thing. In fact, we know in Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 5, here's a good picture of what fasting looked. This is a dialogue between Israel and God. Isaiah 58, 3 through 5. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice. I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting. Here's the, the key. To please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting? When you keep on fighting and quarreling, this kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. This is God speaking to Israel. It won't get them anywhere with him. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penitence, bowing your heads like reeds, bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think that this will please the Lord? How much of our life, guys, is spent on things, on our thing? And God is over here like, I'm not impressed. All I want you to do is to see and to receive and to to receive the kind of satisfaction that comes with God as being impressive in our lives. A lot of us, we define ourselves by our job, our sports, our school, our academics. I see students like this. Our church, sometimes our church, our denomination, we, our political party, our flags that we fly, our entertainment, I can't tell you how many students define themselves by the movies that they're into, by the culture that they're into, by the bands that you were listening to. So we define ourselves by all of these different things. That's what the Pharisees were doing. But God knows our heart. He knows our heart, and he knows why we do the things that we do. And so here's, as we get closer to this um, parable, it's important for us to know the disciples example the new by letting go of everything, and the Pharisees example the old by refusing to let go, by refusing to let go. 
And so Jesus turns to answer the next complaint and gives another point out of what a new life in him looks like. Someone who can receive the gospel and let go of their old patterns and values can look forward in humility to something worth celebrating. And so the thing that we see here is he encourages us to celebrate, to celebrate him. He says, I am with them, my disciples. And so they should be, I'm with them right now. They should be excited. They should be glad. It's okay for them to be in a, in a place of celebration. There's something worth celebrating here. And, and so to go back to that first example of Levi then, Levi leaves everything, follows him. What was Levi's mentality or attitude in doing that? It was, it was a banquet. He, he threw a party. He celebrated. He was pumped. Have you ever been around somebody who's come to Christ, who's met Jesus for the first time? They're pumped. They're excited. They're re like they've never known the kind of assurance that comes. They know that they're made right with God, not because of what they do or don't do, but because of Jesus Christ. And they can't help but tell other people about it. That's like the first thing that a true, genuine, new believer does. They're excited. They try everything. Have you ever been around them? I mean, they're like every ministry, like, sign me up, man. I'm in. I'm there. Where's the church? I want to, every Bible study, they sign up every, because they're excited. They're pumped. They, they're celebratory about what God has done. And I think that we've lost the joy of our salvation because we miss what the gospel means to us like it meant to us when we were first saved from our sins. Christians should be known as people who celebrate Christ. Jesus, our King, is more than anything else, more than any other thing in our life, more than birthdays, more than our, our football teams, more than graduations, more than promotions, more than bonuses. We should be people who are like, that dude is pumped about Jesus. Why are we missing it? We become so much about the world. We celebrate, we elevate the world. In fact, the early Christians really got this principle. They knew it well. They, they were frustratingly joyous, I like to coin the term, to the governments in, in early church history. If you've read something like the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, they would, they would be taken to their death, being killed for being a Christian, and they would be singing joyous songs, thanking God for the privilege of living the life that he gave them, and then being able to die the death that they were now going to die for his namesake. What in the world? How could you be happy about walking to your death for Jesus' namesake? They understood something that I think we miss. That Jesus, above all, was the most important. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Jesus continues to encourage us in, in what to celebrate. You see that in John 16, 20. He says that the, he kind of that same thing, that the disciples will have a short time, um, but that sorrow in the, in the time that he'll be taken away, that he will be crucified. In that time between there, there will be sorrow, but that sorrow will turn to joy. And he spends that passage in, 16, in John 16, 20 explaining the joy of that celebration, that, that celebratory worth salvation. So for us, how come we can't celebrate 365 of Jesus, 365 days a year of Jesus celebrating that he is here with us now? We know from the Great Commission, if you know the Great Commission, he ends the Great Commission with what? And lo, I will be, be with you always until the end of this age. He's with us right here, right now. There really is something to get pumped about. 
And Paul got this principle. Paul understood it. He tells the Philippians, rejoice. Again, I said rejoice. He encourages the early church to rejoice. Always be pumped. Does that mean don't be sad? No, we have sad things happen. But in that sadness, we can still rejoice in the assurance of Jesus Christ, can't we? So followers today, this is a really hard slide. This was a really hard one for me to put up here. But it says, what we communicate as the highest priority becomes the highest priority to our children. I think you'd ask anybody today, any Christian family today, what is the most important thing to you? They would probably say God and, and family. They'd probably say, but, but they would typically say God. Ask, your, ask their wives, what's most important? Um, that's where, uh, you know, a real definer is if you ask somebody else, what do you see as most important to me? What, what would people say? That's a dangerous question. If you ask somebody else, what is most important to me? What would they say? It breaks my heart sometimes that I think they, they would say, like sometimes even my own kids say, well, you lose your mind at football. I've never seen you lose or get that excited or that freaked out. But yet, what is the thing that we communicate to our children is the most important thing in our lives? I think sometimes we, we as a culture has, have made performance such, such a value and such an importance. We've communicated to our kids the grading system, all that we do. We've communicated to the kids the most important thing is that they succeed according to our expectations. And now we live in an age, as a college pastor I see this, that the students who are, who are in our colleges are so riddled with anxiety and so paralyzed by fear, they're afraid to make a single decision because they might fail. And I think, guys, it's because we've made the wrong things important. And those are Christian families. It's because we have made the wrong things important. I see this in premarital counseling all the time. When we sit down and we talk to couples, we ask, uh, we kind of get down to the, 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 some of the influences on how they do relationships and why they do relationships the way they do. And, and it never ceases to amaze me how surprised all of us are when we understand that our parents and the houses that we grew up in have an influence on how we do things today, much oftentimes to our horror, sometimes to our benefit. <coughs> what we make important is going to be important to our kids. So here's a couple of ideas for us. Can we celebrate new birthdays? Instead of birthdays, your mom did your work, did the work for you on, on your birthday, didn't she? But for your new birthday, Jesus did the work for you. How about, how, let's celebrate that time when you met Jesus. Let's blow it up. Let's make it the most important memory every year because it is the most important thing that happened to you in eternity because it changed your eternity. I love doing every year we do, uh, well, not every year, but whenever we have people come to Christ in our college ministry, we do what we call a baptism pool party, where we rent out the YMCA. Um, in fact, some, some folks who've been baptized in the YMCA are, are here today, right? That, that when they come to Christ, they want to celebrate in baptism. We go and we have, we, we, the pool's so full of kids and families, we don't, and, and all of our students come and we baptize there right in the middle of the YMCA pool, and then at the end of it, we go, Jump in! 
because it's worth celebrating. It's worth getting pumped about. It's worth getting excited that somebody wants to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Why are we locked into holidays? Why is it just Easter and Christmas that we, can, that we have to celebrate Christ? Why can't we celebrate 365? Because our salvation applies to us 365 if you've trusted in Jesus. Be the guy that brings entrees to work or cupcakes to work. And then have your coworkers ask, like, why are you celebrating? What do you do? He's like, dude, Jesus saved me. Let me tell you about it. What if you were that person? I think that's what the early church was like. Like, you guys are weird. What are you celebrating? Let me tell you, man. Jesus, up until this point, has been very direct with them. But, not, but now he shifts to using a parable. And so the Pharisees are there, and he shifts to using a parable. It's like the ultimate insult with tact. To give them yet another chance to hear the truth of the kingdom of heaven or to be pushed into being completely offended. There is no middle ground with Christ. And here's the sharp part, and I think he shares this parable, and it's similar to Ephesians, actually, if you think about what he's calling him to. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, you took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. We have a new self to put on. So then he hits, he hits the Pharisees with this gut punch of a parable, and he, he unpacks the garments. It's really important for us then to understand the cultural context for this here. And primarily, parables are cultural in, na in nature, and so he hits the garments, right? Jesus' audience made and patched their own clothes. Any of you make and patch your own clothes on a regular basis? No, there's this thing called JCPenney's, which I'm sad closed here in town, but that's where I got all my jeans, right? But no, we don't patch. We don't patch our own clothes. We don't. And so, but everybody in the audience here would have understood that taking a new patch from a new pa a part of clothing and putting it on an old would, would ruin both. It would ruin both. It would get wet. It would shrink. It would probably tear. And if it didn't tear, it wouldn't match. It would look terrible. And so what Jesus is illustrating here to the Pharisees, he says, the old worldview that you have, the old values, the old importances, if you try to bring those into what I'm offering here, it's just going to ruin both of them. It's just going to ruin both of them. He, the same thing with the, the new wine and the old wineskins. Everybody at the time, they would travel from place to place in their source of water because they couldn't always count on the fact that the water around would be clean. They would bring wineskins with them on long trips. And if you put new wine in an old wineskin, you would be out the thing that was supposed to give you refreshment along the travel. So nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. You would be out both. And so here again, Jesus is making that same point. If you try to take your old worldview, your old priorities, and shove them into this new title called Christian, it's not going to work. It's going to ruin both. In fact, it's going to ruin your old life because if you walk around saying that you're a Christian, people are going to hold you up to the expectations of what Scripture says. And so you're going to be known as a hypocrite if you try to just live Christianity but in title only. You, and, and so it ruins, effectively it ruins your old life because people are going to try to hold you to the, accountable to life in Christ if you call yourself a Christian. And it, it ruins the new life because the gospel itself is ruined 
by how people see it lived out in you. And I don't mean doing good things. I mean being a receiver of good graces of Christ. That's why the gospel is so confused today. It would have been similar, so just to give you a quick slide, I don't have time to go through all of that, but um, you know, chemically you can show that the yeast turned into natural sugars and the grape juice into alcohol and carbon, carbon dioxide was produced, which would typically blow open the, um, the, the goat skin for, for their wine. And so same thing for us today. There would be different things that, that we would say that would be a bad idea. Like that's not a good way to take a screenshot. Nobody does that. It ruins your Mac, right? And another one would be, uh, this is not a good way to go boating or to put your boat in the water um, because you're going to ruin your pickup in the midst of trying to get it. So it, well, basically what he's saying here is that you're going to ruin both the gospel in this world and your own life apart from Christ if you try to put those two together. They just don't work. They ruin each other. How have we today confused the old and the new, trying to put them together, thereby ruining both? And I want to leave you with two really brief examples that I see in the church. And the first one I see is moralism. Moralism within the church. And here's where we get this really confused, guys. We love to be told how to live a better Christian life. And so we spend so much time on how to be kind. The problem is we're sinful and the human heart is deceitful above all else. And so the only way to know and to learn kindness is to meet Jesus and to look at him and to learn from his example. He defines love. He defines kindness. We don't know it. See, if you try to take Jesus' teaching and give it an, a moral or ethical application, then you make it useless. You make his teaching useless. And we do this in the church all the time. We want to teach people how to be good people. That's not what Jesus was getting at. Jesus spent most of his, and you guys have heard Tom say this, Jesus spent most of his ministry teaching good people that they're not good. That's what he spent most of his ministry doing. We need a doctor. We don't just need new Christian living skills. We need to stare at the gospel and understand it and believe it and receive it. God says our motivation for doing things is much more important than what we do. And so if, it, if we try to make Christianity about the things that we do, we miss out on the gospel. So let me ask you a question, and this one's a hard one. Can doing a good thing with a wrong motivation be sin? Can doing a good thing with a wrong motivation be sin? I think so. Do we in the church struggle with that all the time? Oh, we're so chock full of good intentions, aren't we? Typically, it's self-intentions. If your goal is to be a good person, then you will miss the grace of God. We know if you come to church, if you believe in the Bible, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're here and you say, I am in desperate need of Jesus Christ. That's humility. And that's humility that Jesus is inviting through this parable. The next thing is relativism. And I'll close with this. Relativism. This is what I call pick-and-choose Christianity. It'll be up there in a minute. Uh, it's pick and choose Christianity. It's like the hometown buffet. Anybody remember the buffets that you used to go to? And you pick what you want, you leave everything else. Well, that's what we have done with Scripture. And this is where we hear things like, Jesus only tells me what I want to hear. I hear students basically surmise that statement. Jesus only tells me what I want to hear. 
I call this open doors theory. A lot of Christians, a lot of students get this idea that if there's an open door, clearly that must be where God is moving. The problem with that theory is that it's just the path of least resistance. And Christ is not the path of least resistance. And so if you just go through every open door that's, that's easier, you're going to be walking further and further away from Christ. Typically, life with Christ is going to be more difficult, harder, because you've got to die to yourself and die to your flesh. And so the open doors theory, that's how we bring in relativism. Because who's it about? We have language in our church today that, that, that says most people, when they describe their salvation, they'll say something equivalent to, and I hear this all the time, I accepted Jesus into my heart. I accepted Jesus into my heart, which it's, it's this nice thought, but you think about it, it kind of sounds like you're just inviting Jesus to come and do life the way that you want him to do life with you, huh? There's a reason why that particular language is not used to describe salvation in Scripture, because it misses out on the full gospel so I asked my students, can somebody say that I um, accepted Jesus into my heart and not actually know God or be saved? And my students resoundingly said, yeah, I think we could. I think they could. We've got to be careful the language that we use. Is everybody who say that not a Christian? No, I think some truly are. They just don't know how to express it in an articulate way. But the problem is it makes it really vague and misunderstandable to those who don't have it. Justifiers, this is typically relativism when we justify or affirm our ideas using scripture or justify or affirm our deeds or our things or feeling good. Jesus wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and rich. Um, and so we have that kind of theology that sifts into the church. That's relativism, because who's that about? It's about me. It's about me. Jesus wants, or, so Jesus is only used to prop up my pursuits, my interests, my desires. He is there to serve me. That's what somebody with this relativism idea has. Um, and I think it's, in, it's infiltrated the church. I think it's here today. It's here, to present. it's here in the present. So I want to leave you with this. Here's my conclusion. In order for us to embrace the fullness of the gospel, we have to let go of our old life and comfortable life and priorities. If you look at your life now, and it's not any different from what it would be without Christ, then you have wasted both your new life in Christ and ruined your old life by calling it Christian. The greatest tragedy would be that someone would hear the gospel of Jesus but say that the old life tastes better, and that's what Luke leaves us, leaves us with, is that most people will want the old wine, the old life. Most people like how that tastes better and continue to do what they have always done just like that student I talked to, and I still pray for him, and it breaks my heart. Guys, let me pray for you. Would you pray for me? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us people who would be humble enough to receive your word, to receive your invitation, God, and not to be prideful before you and think we know how life ought to be lived. You made this life. We trust you, Lord Jesus. And I pray for those here that maybe don't know you, haven't placed their faith in you, Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that Holy Spirit, you would give them a kind of understanding of the depths of their sin and what they were saved from, God, and the satisfaction, Lord Jesus, that comes in you. Because nothing in this world, Lord, we profess as a church, nothing in this world will satisfy us like you can satisfy us, Lord. Would you give us a hunger and a joy and a satisfaction in you 
so that everything else will be put in its place. I pray that over us, over my heart, over us. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thank you for being here. Have a very happy Sunday.